Recorded. That means all the comments you make are going to be, you know, heard by the phantom internet people. Where am I from? Um, it's a good question. Uh, I grew up in Minnesota. There's so many ways to answer that question, right? Could have said from planet Earth. You know, my parents. There's many ways to approach that kind of question. Um, today we're going to talk about Rosh Hashanah being the day of judgment. And I said in Hasidus, there tend to be two aspects, two, two, two emphases on the Day of Judgment. One I mentioned at the end of yesterday's class, the idea that Hashem initially judges us by an impossible standard, and so all we can do is to beseech Him for undeserved mercy. And I mentioned that in the context of yesterday's class, and crowning Hashem King, and returning to Hashem, and deepening our devotion to Him um, after the withdrawal. Um, and I'm not going to make any reference to anything we did um, about that idea other to just mention now that we did it. And this is going to be a different idea. This notion of crowning Hashem king, oh, sorry, this notion of, of the Day of Judgment um, has to do with judgment for the forthcoming year. Now, what I would like to do very briefly is to discuss the classical understanding of the judgment of Rosh Hashanah before we get to the Hasidic approach. Um, but I want to do it very quickly, which means I'm just going to do the rough outline and all of your questions, you'll just have to save for some other time, okay? And the reason I want to do it is I, I think it's helpful to have a contrast, have a sense of like where Hasidus is trying to shift a person's thinking and relating to the idea rather than the way it would be understood, at least by superficial reading the classical sources. So two things I'm not going to do. I'm not going to elaborate and take questions on it, and I'm not at the end of class going to talk about how the classic view and the Hasidic view are reconcilable, although they are. Because the goal of my class is I want you to realize that, that Hasidus is trying to push a shift in thinking about the topic in general. Obviously, nothing in Hasidus is ever supposed to be a rejection of classical Jewish sources. But it is nonetheless novel and innovative in the approach. Good? Okay, the classic view um, on Rosh Hashanah is as follows. God takes out a scale. Kind of put two things on one side, right? And there are angels. There are angels that are literally satanic. As in the Hebrew word, lahastin, to be the adversary to oppose, which is where the English word Satan comes from. The satan means the adversary. So they're adversarial angels. And they are created by our misdeeds, by our sins. And they are attempting to convince God to place our sins on one side of the scale. And then there are good angels. Right? These are advocates. And these angels are created by all of the mitzvahs that we've done. And they are trying to convince God to put our good deeds, our mitzvahs, on the other side of the scale. So far, so good? Kind of mental image scale? Okay. Then... God puts all the deeds on the scale, okay? And it's not just whether they go on the scale or don't go on the scale, it's also how much weight do they have, right? So the, one sin might carry more or less weight, one mitzvah might carry more or less weight. And it is up to the Hashem to adjudicate, to judge as to how much weight a particular sin should be given. So obviously the adversarial angels, the satanic angels, I like saying that word. Um, I once gave a class about evil angels and decided that the best way to describe them was demonic hell spot, just because I like saying it. Um, but anyway, you have to find enjoyment in life somehow. Um, 
It's an important thing. So the, the adversarial angels, they also argue that even, the, even the, the sins should be given more weight and even the mitzvahs should be seen in a negative light. And then the, obviously the advocates, the opposite, that the sins should be um, put in a more favorable light, discounted entirely or given less weight. The mitzvahs really to hype up their positive element. In the end, Hashem hears both sides of the argument, makes a judgment, puts each and every one of our previous year's actions on the scale, and then it tips one way or the other. If it tips that there is overall more merit, then Hashem inscribes the person into the book of life. What does that mean? He lives. They live assuming that they were not supposed to die because, I mean, everybody's supposed to live only a mortal life anyway, right? So I want to be very clear. Um, it doesn't mean, this whole judgment thing doesn't necessarily pertain to the fact that Hashem decrees from the outset that people only live a certain amount of time anyway. It's talking about premature death. And if, God forbid, the scales weigh down on the other side, then Hashem inscribes that person, heaven forbid, into the book of death, which means that that person will... Die. Die when? <laughs> Very good. When? This year. That year, right. The coming year. Okay, what if the scales are equally balanced? Right, they have until Yom Kippur, to, Yom Kippur, not Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, <laughs> to change the balance towards the side of merit. If they do make that change, then they're inscribed in the Book of Life. And if God forbid not, then the opposite. Where okay. do we find all of this? This is in the Talmud and codified in the Rambam's Code of Jewish Law and many other classical Jewish sources. Okay. And you'll see this theme um, addressed in many of the prayers on Rosh Hashanah. In addition, regardless of how God, which book God has written you in, on Yom Kippur, God seals the books, meaning that there's always the possibility of change. So even though there is that person who's in the perfect balance where the decision is delayed, even someone who's been inscribed, God forbid, in the book of death, could still change it until Yom Kippur. This is where the expression of being be written and sealed for a good year. The writing is on Rosh Hashanah, the sealing is on Yom Kippur. Okay? So this is the notion of the judgment. And it's obviously you want to come to Rosh Hashanah with a lot, a lot of advocating angels and very few adversarial ones. So it's a good idea to do tshuva because tshuva removes the argument of the adversarial angels to put the sins on the scale. Conversely, by the way, you should just know that regretting mitzvahs that you have done means that those mitzvahs are no longer admissible on the side of merit. So it's not a good idea to regret having done a mitzvah. Um, last two points. Only God knows how much weight is appropriate to put on one or the other, which means unless you are a prophet, you do not know how someone else should be judged. Okay? Um, and there's a lot of technicalities also to how God judges things. And this, this last point is, do most people die in any given year? No. Do most, even what we would call bad people, die in any given year? So what does that tell us about overall God's tendency in this judgment? Is he more merciful or more harsh? Merciful, because if he was harsh, most people would not survive the year, right? Does that mean we should discount this judgment? No, but that's kind of the classic view we find in the Talmud and other classic sources about Rosh Hashanah being a day of judgment. Good? Okay. So, the theme you've kind of take away from that is that, it, 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 is that it's, you, you're being judged based on your behavior um, and it has serious consequences, okay? Um, I'm gonna use a few words that I don't think really reflect that um, idea, okay? 
One word is, I'm going to use this, intimate. Would you say that that whole judgment process is an intimate experience with God? Does that just sound like that? No. Okay, I'll use another word. Um, is it sound, would you say that this is empowering? Right, probably also not, okay? Um, would you say that this idea, this notion of judgment, um, would be connected with the, with the notion of optimism? Like you're standing there and someone's deciding, you know, live or die based on something. Is that like, not wishful thinking, but like a genuine, deep seated optimism about the future? No. No. That is not right. Okay. I mean, just use as an example, um, you know, it's not the same thing, but like if you are trying to apply for a job or college admissions or something like that, and you know not everybody gets in, and you know you are a borderline case, right? You're not sitting there with, yeah, I'm like, of course I'll get in because that, you know, the world just works out in my favor. Like, like, like there's a, that's a kind of wishful thing. Like a person, that situation not lend to optimism. It lends towards like wishful thinking, hedging your bets, Worrying about what your backup plan is going to be, right? Trying not to get anxious, right? The approach from the Hasidus about the Day of Judgment is not meant to make it any less serious, any less intense, but should give it a very different flavor where there is, there is intimacy, there is empowerment, there is optimism, not despite the judgment, but actually because of what this judgment is. Okay? And that's what I want to focus on. A different understanding of the Day of Judgment. And again, I'm going to, in this class I'm emphasizing just that it's different. I'm not going to go back to how to reconcile the classic way of understanding. That in no way takes away from the seriousness and intensity, but puts a very different flavor on that. Okay. So to understand this, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a different idea altogether, which is why is Rosh Hashanah called Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year? A more appropriate term would be Tchila Sashana, the beginning of the year. Right. Has anyone ever heard this question before? Yes? Okay. So if you've heard this question, either I will give a different answer than the one you know, or I will give this answer you know, but probably from a slightly different perspective. Okay. And to do that, I need a volunteer who plays a musical instrument to confirm my preconceived notions. Anyone want to volunteer for that? Nobody here plays a musical instrument? This is so sad. Yes, he does. You have in the past? Yeah. Like decently or like you tried and stopped because it wasn't really worth it? I mean, I, I, I was okay. Like, I okay, okay, that's good enough. Are you willing to confirm my preconceived notions? I can try. Okay, that's the most I can ask, right? Yeah. All right. So, what instrument did you play? The violin and cello, those are hard instruments. Yeah. Okay. I was hoping like the piano or something. It would have been a little bit easier. But especially for the purpose of this illustration. But we'll go with the we'll go with the violin. I played some piano. You played some piano? Okay. Did you ever get to the point in playing the violin or the cello where you could just pick it up and decide to play a particular piece of music and just play it? Yeah, it like becomes muscle memory. Right. Good. Okay, so what I want everyone to think about, and it's a little bit of a weird way to think about this, but
but you play the violin primarily with your hands. I know there's this whole neck thing, but we're going to ignore that for, for right now. We're just going to focus on the hands. I want you to, you know, to suspend your disbelief for a moment and accept the fact that you have two sets of hands. So this is one set. Right? These hands we're all familiar with. Now, I can't play a musical instrument. Not because I haven't... Not because it's impossible, I've just never learned how to do it. And there's another set of hands. That other set of hands is in your brain. Now, if we... And I don't recommend doing this in like real life, but if we were to cut open someone's brain and we start looking around, will we find a set of hands there? So what do I mean that there is a set of hands in your brain? And the one set's telling the other set what to do. What? The, the set in your brain is telling your set here what to do. Right. So if you're saying that you can pick up the violin and just play the musical instrument, right? So your hands, which are complex, right? There's 10 different fingers that move different ways, right? They're receiving, we'll use the word they use in science, signals from your brain, right? That means your brain has to have what's called in neurology a map or a model of the hands. The brain has to have a sense of this is the right pinky, this is the left pinky, because it has to send the signals to the right fingers at the right time to do the right things, right? Otherwise, will the music come out properly? No. So now, and this is actually one of the interesting questions. In neuroscience, how does that work? And for our purposes, it doesn't matter. But conceptually, there must be some sense of the brain of each individual part of your body, at least the parts of your body you have volitional control over, such as your fingers, such that your brain can direct each one separately and individually. Does that make sense? And that kind of gets mapped out through the nervous system as it comes out of the body. Um, one of the cool things that that means is that um, different people, there can be slight variations in that because like, um, you notice that some people have a hard time moving two fingers independently from each other. So that has to do um, because they're not sufficiently differentiated in the nervous system, meaning in the, in the model in the brain, there isn't two distinct parts. And so you move one, you move both. And the question is like, is that temporary? Is that, can you fix that? It's just an interesting little phenomenon. So you have this kind of neurological hands in your brain that flows out into your nervous system. And then you have your physical hands, which, you know, I guess go play the piano. They do. Good? Make sense? Now, what's cool about playing a musical instrument when you're decent is that you can just pick up the instrument and decide that you want to play a particular piece of music and voila, your hands just play the music. Right. If you are making conscious decisions about how to move your fingers at each particular state, at each particular stage of the music, then for our purposes, I'm going to call that practicing and not playing. Yeah, you're nodding your head, so you're confirming what I'm saying. Right. I have a son who plays keyboard actually quite well. Um, and yeah, there's a difference. Right? There's a way you just like, I decide and then the fingers do. Or, right? And then there's, it worked, it didn't work. Okay. So, the way you play the musical instrument is that the neurological hands, and this is the way it would be kind of put in Hasidus, the neurological hands clothe themselves in the physical hands, and when that happens, they function exactly as it, they should and they play the instrument. But if you don't have it in your brain, right, if you don't have that, for instance, like a person who like the two fingers don't move separately, right, or as you put it, muscle memory, but it's actually much more neurological than actually, have the, mu the muscles don't actually gain memory. Mm -hmm. It's much more the nervous system and through the brain 
as we call muscle memory. If that's not already there and you just decide to play it, it comes out all messed up. Okay? But that's also to know is just because it's in but just because that piece of music is your 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 neurological hands have it does not necessarily mean it'll ever come out and manifest in the physical hands, right? Because you for instance know more than one piece of music and you don't necessarily play all of them at the same time or any of them at a given point in time. Does that make sense? Okay. So now the decision to play a particular piece of music, that's a momentary, instantaneous decision, right? The actual playing of that music, though, is that a momentary, instantaneous thing, or does that play out over time? Over time. Over time, right? So, in a weird sort of way, when you think about it, it's like this, is that if I talk about just the neurological hands, right? The neurological hands, they're the... the, 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 the the fact that the neurological hands are going to play this piece of music, that's in your head in that one moment. But now that infusing that into the physical hands and playing that, that has to unfold over time. Right? So and if you kind of think about it, what's happening when you're playing the music is you're taking something that was instantaneous and entirely neurological and mental and making it something that has a long duration and making it physical. Right? And assuming that nothing goes wrong, the way the music comes out physically over that duration of time will match perfectly what was in the brain to begin with. Right? Now, we're not perfect, so it doesn't always happen that way. Okay, good? So, it would be fair to say that the entire... What's the longest piece of music that you know? It's been a while. Since doesn't have to be okay. Mm-hmm. How long is the longest piece of music that you know? Five minutes, ten minutes, just twenty minutes. Like, just like between five, ten minutes. Five, ten minutes. But that would mean that ten minutes of music is all in your is all in terms of the neurological part, the neurological hands is all there at once in your head. But in your physical hands, when that flows into your physical hands, it takes 10 minutes, right? Now, somebody might know a piece of music that takes 40 minutes to play, right? 50 minutes to play. Okay? How long does God's music last? When God plays a piece of music, how long does it last? I will tell you. God, for instance, doesn't play his songs, you know? Songs are like, you know, how long is a pop song? Three minutes. About three minutes, right? Why is a pop song around three minutes? That's right. The nature of how pop music works is that you really can't listen to it for longer than three minutes. It starts to grate on people. And there's actually a science to like everything from cutting film to like music. However, if you play other, make other genres of music, the, the, the length that is most engaging will vary, right? Okay. So you have these types of things where you have like, um, in some of like more classical these, you have things like you have like movements within a big piece, right? So there's the first movement and the second movement. I don't know anything about music, so I'm just probably botching the terminology, and you'll forgive me, right? Everything down to the individual note, right? So God's music, when God plays a piece of music, he likes to have his music in 12 movements, usually. Sometimes 13, but usually 12 movements. That's his preferred thing, okay? And each movement in that music generally has 29 or 30 like specific kind of I don't know what the right word is what's the sub part of a movement I don't know 
but some, some, some smaller section. And each of those tend to follow kind of a binary cycle. Kind of a, kind of a, a, a going down and a coming up kind of a cycle to it. That's the kind of music God likes to play. So how long does it take him to play that? I know, you didn't think about God playing music, but he does. How long does it take God to play his music? Well, if he's playing it with his physical hands, metaphorical physical hands, it takes him a full year. But if we're talking about when it's in his neurological hands, how long is that? No. Yeah, that's Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the entire year in one day. Now, I know some of you say, well, isn't Rosh Hashanah two days? The Talmud says, and I'm not going to explain why this is, it has complicated legal reasons and then interesting Kabbalistic explanations, but we're just going to take it for granted, that Rosh Hashanah, even though it's actually a two-day holiday, it is considered to be what's called the Yoyma Arichta, one long day. Um, why it's that, I'm not going to get into, because it will just take us kind of sidetracked, but the consequence of that, I'm sure you're familiar with the tradition that on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, when you light candles, you should have a new fruit. So you can say the Shechiano blessing. That's to avoid the question of whether you say Shechiano again because it's the same. You say Shechiano on a new thing, but if it's the same day, then you really shouldn't be saying it again. But maybe we're supposed to just repeat everything. So because of that question, the way about it is you say Shechiano also when you have a new fruit. Um, similarly, the person blowing the shofar on the second day ideally should have like a new piece of clothing to avoid the same issues. So, but it's really, you know, halakhli it's considered as, as, as one day and the Kabbalists is considered like one day. And so his idea is that the entire year is contained in this one moment in time, day of Rosh Hashanah. Now, how do you understand that? Well, the same way, right? That entire piece of music you're going to play is contained in your mind, in your decision to like bring to life that particular knowledge, that particular form of your neurological hands in your brain. But then when that translates and flows into the physical hands, right, each note... Well, maybe it's not really true because you play multiple notes at the same time, but, but notes have to be in sequence and so it actually ends up having a duration in time, right? So what is on Rosh Hashanah, in essence, one thing is the rest of the year, 12 months with 29 to 30 days, which is a day and a, with a night and a day. You understood that was the reference, right? Okay. So that means, and then whatever happens during the year has in some sense already happened on Rosh Hashanah. If you know a piece of music, right, and you decide to play it, everything that your hands do with this is nothing's new. It's just tangibly playing out over time what was already true of those neurological hands, that map in the, in the brain. So should you expect, yeah, I don't know, let's say what month are we in, L, should you expect anything to happen today that didn't already happen last Rosh Hashanah? Based on this idea, no. So, that makes Rosh Hashanah kind of important, right? Because it's not God is like setting out like a list. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. That's not really what it is. If you think about it more about God has um, entered a certain mode, entered a certain way of being. Like when, a, like when a musician decides to play a piece of music, especially if they decide to play that piece of music, not for ulterior motives. Right? That means this piece of music speaks to me. Th- this way of manipulating my hands and what it brings about speaks to me, right? And that 
right? That decision is made and is fully formed and is, and, and, and is fully real neurologically, and then it flows out into the hands and is manifest over a duration of time. That's what's happening in Rosh Hashanah. And so the rest of the year is playing out Hashem's sense of himself and who he is and how he relates to us that has already been established on Rosh Hashanah. And nothing new will take place. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that, and I want to enter the, speak about the complication in a moment, but I want to stop and ask, does everyone understand what the basic idea that I've said? And if you didn't, please bring it up now, because I'm going to complicate it. I'm going to add some complicated dimensions to it. So if the basic idea isn't clear, then we're just not going to work. So now is the time to ask about the basic idea. Okay. So either did a great job of explaining, or you're all brilliant, or people are too embarrassed to ask, or some combination thereof. The what? The first. No. <laughs> Not the first. Okay. So, is it possible midway through the piece of music you decide to stop playing the music? Yeah. In other words, it's not mechanical. It's not that because you made that decision, now it's a program and it has to run its course. Right? It's not a, it's not a script in that sense. Okay? So if Hashem, and I'll use this word decree, because that's the word that's used in the classical sources, but you're getting the decree is not the right flavor from the Hasidic perspective. But we'll use the word anyway. If God has decreed that on Tuesday, the 17th of El, something is supposed to happen to you, and he's decreed that the previous Hashem, does that necessarily mean it will happen to you? No. Because just because the next note in the song I decided to play is a C minor doesn't mean I actually at that moment have to move hands right. At any point, I could feel like I'm no longer motivated to keep playing that song, right? This instrument isn't working for me, whatever it is, right? And I can just stop. And so the thing gets stuck in my head and never translates into my hand, right? It stays on the neurological hands. It never reaches the physical hand, right? Does that make sense? So this means, there is a notion, it speaks about that, we're judged both on Rosh Hashanah and every day. Because there's a question of like, what music is Hashem going to play? And then, is he going to keep playing? Right? If you were playing the violin, and what you notice that the violin all of a sudden is out of tune, you might decide to stop playing, right? So what if Hashem has this whole music he wants to play, and all of a sudden you're out of tune? then what was determined on Rosh Hashanah may never actually come into fruition. Okay. So does that mean like once you've got like a good decree on Rosh Hashanah, you're like, well, God has it all planned out. I can just sit back and relax. No. Okay. Because what's determined on Rosh Hashanah is what is, will be infused into God's hands, but not the actual infusing, right? Because the actual infusing is a moment-to-moment. It's like when you're playing the music, right? At any point, you can just stop. You're not a machine. Now, in order to make this a little clearer, what I want to do is I want to talk about God's hands. Because this whole analogy doesn't work unless we speak about God having hands, right? So, from the Hasidic point of view, God has hands. Does he have metaphoric hands or literal hands? Wrong. He has literal hands. 
According to Hasidus, God has literal hands. Now, side question. Do people have literal hands or metaphoric hands? Literal. From the Hasidic point of view, people have metaphoric hands. This is going to be important if we want to understand Exodus, right? Sometimes it's not different information, it's just a different way of like relating to the information. Okay, so first off, I think it's important to differentiate two words which kind of confuse together, which is physical and literal. Okay? Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Um, this is an eye, right? That is physical. Uh, if you have a sewing needle, it also has an eye that is equally physical, right? So the question is not one is physical, one is not physical. Physicality is not an issue here. But this is an eye in a very literal sense, right? Why is the eye of a needle called an eye? That's the point. It's the eye of the hole? Yeah. Oh, okay, I misunderstood you. Yeah, right. Is that that hole, right, evokes a certain sense of similarity to an actual eye, right? Similarly with the eye of a storm, right? Right. So those, though, that were, you know, it's become common enough that I don't know if we would think of it as a, as a metaphor anymore, but that's, you know, this is an eye, and this is kind of metaphorically like an eye because it kind of looks like an eye, and then eventually that became its name, right? So the literal thing is like what this word is actually intended to convey, and then metaphoric meaning is where you're calling something else by that same word because of a sufficiently significant similarity. Does that make sense? Okay. Have you ever been stumped? Yeah. What's a stump? Stump? Yeah, stump. It's a blockage that you cannot pass easily and you need to figure out operations and logistics and pass it. Right. Leave it and turn around. So I'm going to take what you're saying and slightly make it a little more... Um, Kindergarten level. Back in the day, people traveled with wagons on roads. Most of these roads were not paved. If the road goes through a forest, you have to clear a path through the forest. Clearing a path through the forest means cutting down trees. As anybody who's ever cut down a tree knows, cutting down the tree is the easy part. Removing the stump is the hard part. So did they always remove the stumps? And if you're traveling down the wagon with the wagon and there's a stump in the path, you can't really get past it and the wagon gets stuck. Right? And so... The stump has made you stuck, and so the, that, called getting, that, that kind of getting stuck called being stumped. And then that got extended to other notions which are similar in some sense, right? So when there's an idea that I don't understand, right, and I can't progress in my learning, that idea has stumped me, like a physical stump on the wagon, right? See? But that's so long ago, we don't even think of it as a metaphoric meaning, but it originally was used, originally was just a metaphoric meaning. See what I'm saying? Like literal and metaphor has to do with what is the word actually intended to convey and then borrowing the word. But if you borrow a word long enough, you, stop, you, you start to think of that as its literal meaning. Right? So of course, from our perspective, this is a, when we say hand, we mean this thing, right? But when Hasidus, which is a godly perspective, says hand, it doesn't mean this thing. This is a hand only in a metaphoric sense. Because a hand is defined, and I'm going to be... Only, I'm going to oversimplify just for the purpose of really about Rosh Hashanah about being judged. Um, a hand is defined by two characteristics. Okay? Number one, a hand is responsive to your will. So is this pen a hand? Well, yeah. No. 
<laughs> well, think about it. If I have a will for this pen to fly across the table, will the pen respond? No. no. So it's not right. Okay. Well, it is responsive to the will in ways that you can interfere with. No, no, no. I, well, everything, it has no will of No, no. That, that's, that's true. It has no will, but it's not responsive to my will. Right? Now, if I, on the other hand, want this piece of flesh and bone to, I don't pick up the pen. Wow. It is responsive to my will. That's pretty cool. You should meditate on that from time to time, actually. That there's parts of the physical universe which respond to your will. And there's parts that don't. Okay, now. Um, the other characteristic of a hand is that a hand directly manipulates external reality. Directly manipulates what we'll call the world. Now, are my thoughts a hand? Your thoughts directly manipulate the world around you? So they're not a hand. Right? If I think about how I want the pen to be somewhere else, that doesn't move the pen, right? My thoughts don't move the pen, right? If I think about how I want my wife to understand something, that doesn't mean magically she now understands it, right? They do not, right? Thoughts, even though they are responsive to your will, do not directly affect the world, okay? But hands are both. They are something which is directly responsive to your will and directly affects the world, so from a Hasidic point of view, no, because we think of things in terms of their primary function. You will notice that on your hands you have opposable thumb, thumbs and for most people independently controllable fingers um, and also greater um, um, range of motion, thus allowing you to exercise real control over the reality around you. Whereas your feet are basically designed to move you around reality. So feet are understood as something that's responsive to your will in a sense of moving you within reality rather than manipulating reality itself. Now, I realize that you can, in fact, like drag yourself around with your hands and you can use your toes to pick things up. Um, but, but that has to do with the fact that the nature of physical things are is that once something's physical, it has a bunch of other things along with it. You know, it's like, um, if I have my hat when I want to wear it, it means I also have to have my hat when I don't want to wear it, right? Like, I only want my hat when I walk outside for whatever strange reason Chabab should sit and wear hats. So, but like when I'm teaching class, I don't. But I can't just disappear it out of existence. So I have to put it somewhere. It's a problem of being a created being. Okay. So now, here's the thing. How, how responsive is this lump of flesh to my will? None, partially, or completely? Completely. Okay. Please go get me Ten bags of potato chips. Not doing that. Why not? You could say I don't really want, right? You could say I don't really want. You could actually say something else, right? This hand is actually not that responsive to my will because the, the, the hand is actually only really gets very, very simple things like extend, right? Contract, fine motor skill, right? It does actually is quite limited. Like if I have a will for something more complex, the hand isn't good enough. Like some, like if I want to understand something, my hand like doesn't know what to do with that, right? See what I'm saying? Like, like the hand is actually it's responsive to a very limited notion of your will. Then you have the problem that the hand can break, right? In all sorts of ways, and then, it, then that affects the quality of it. So it's partially responsive to your will, right? Um, how good is the hand at manipulating reality? Can you take a whole people out of their slavery with your hand? It's not very good at manipulating reality, is it then? Right? 
Like, I can only manipulate reality around in this range. It's very small. And as long as it's not too heavy and not too big and not too small and not too wedged into place, it's not, you're not that, like, right? so. Now, how responsive are God's hands to his will? Partially, not at all, or absolutely. Absolutely. How effective are God's hands at controlling reality? Okay, so now, have you ever seen a doll? Does a doll have a hand? In a literal or metaphoric sense? It's a literal hand? It's at this? Or it's called a hand because of its similarity to this? It's physical, but it's metaphoric, right? Because of its similarity to this. So you know why Hashem calls this thing a hand? Because it's similar to the things that he has. But it's, you know, it's the, you know, a doll is the plastic made in China version. This is the, you know, flesh and blood made in the mother's womb version. But it's not really a hand. Because if it was really a hand, it would be responsive absolutely to will. And it would manipulate reality in an absolute sense. So those are God's hands. Now, I don't know what his hands are, and I don't know what they're made of, but the idea is there's something which on the one hand is totally responsive to his will and has total control, total power to manipulate reality. And when the Torah speaks about God's hands, it's talking about that thing. Okay? And that is the interface, that is the medium through which Hashem interacts with the world he created. Good? Most of the time your hands are sitting idly or just doing random things, right? Right? But sometimes you're like playing music with your hands, right? Or writing. What's happening at that point, right, is that you have invested yourself in a certain sense of your hands in your mind and trying to translate that into actual physical hands. So God has a second set of hands. What are his second set of hands? Is the kind of sense he has of the first set of hands and what they are, what they can do. So in Rosh Hashanah, where is God? Is he in the world using his hands or he's in his head? Why can't he be both? He can do anything. Huh? He can do anything. But, just, but you want to know the amazing thing about can? It's an important lesson to learn in life. Just because you can doesn't mean you do. So where is God on Rosh Hashanah? Is he, he's in his head. And what does Rosh Hashanah literally mean? Head. He is in head. In other words, God is right, God on Rosh Hashanah is, is dealing with the question, going back to the musician, is dealing with the question of what song do I want to play, not the actual playing of the music. What happens after Rosh Hashanah? He starts playing. And if it's not working out, could he stop? Sure. Okay. So there's this two levels of godliness. There is the head within, there's the hands within God's head, and then there's the actual hands that, okay, what are called in Hasidus, the inner hands and the outer hands. The inner hands are here, and the outer hands are here. The outer hands are things that are the literal, they're the hand in the sense they respond to your will and they manipulate the world, and the inner hands is your sense of that that is where your, quote, muscle memory, right, where you make the decision of what you're going to play, etc. Good? Um, anyone here type? Okay. I think we all do. Well, no. I want to be very clear. Typing means you don't think of the letters. Like without looking? Not just without looking. I want to step above that. Not only you're not looking, you also don't think of the letters. Sometimes. Depends. It comes yeah. 
So that's where all you're thinking about the words you want to say, right? And then you send that to your physical hands, your physical hands just tell it, right? Okay. I don't type in the sense that, like, I think about the actual letters, and if I'm looking like, you know, what, you, know the doc, you go to the doctor, the doctor's like this. Okay. So I'm not that bad, I'm close to that. Okay. So Rosh Hashem is in his head, and then the, the, the step after Rosh is that all coming out. Okay. So now, let's imagine you had a musician for a moment. And the musician was deciding which piece of music they wanted to play. What would the factors, and we're not, no ulterior motives, not like they're being hired by somebody. I have a friend of mine who's a musician and um, he basically only makes money by giving lessons. He cannot play professionally um, because if you play professionally, then you have to play the music that people want to hear. And the music that people want to hear tends not to be the music he likes to play. Your problem? What is the music that people want to hear and they're willing to pay for usually in the religious world? Okay. Music that people can dance to or music that's background music for events? And he likes to play other stuff. Things that are a little bit more creative. And just. So. That's what happens. If you don't want to play for ulterior motives, so you kind of don't necessarily make money. Okay. So what happens is a musician does not want to play for all two nerves. They want to, they want to have, this is intrinsically, I want to play this music because it's, it speaks to me. So what does he take into consideration or she take into consideration when they're making that decision? When they're in their head, getting that place, this is the music I'm going to play. This is, this version of my hand is what's going to come out. Nobody knows. If a musician's gonna play a piece of music, not for ulterior reasons, what things do they take into consideration? Their mood. Okay. Their mood. What they like. What they like. The time of day. Which probably could affect their mood, yeah. Who's going to be listening? Okay, let's be what careful. What's it? Let's not do that because we're talking about, because it's an analogy for God, and so capability is gonna be a non issue. But you would be right in real life, but we're not gonna. Okay. Who's gonna be listening? Why is that important? What, are they trying to make money? It's just appreciation. Appreciate ah, right. So, so this creates a very interesting question. Is this musician playing the music merely as an act of personal expression and personal experience? Or are they playing this music in the context of a relationship with someone? Right? In other words, if the musician is saying, like, I feel this piece of music, I'm going to play it, and, and, like, I'll lock myself and I'm play the music. Right? Then, like, even if someone hears it, it's, it's beside the point. But if a person is playing this music, it's, I'm not playing music for ulterior motive, but this music is simultaneously expressive of me, but also about a kind of bonding between me and the listener. And that's important to me, right? It's that kind of an experience, which is a different kind of an experience. If music is coming in that place, right? Then who that person is, what they can appreciate, what their mood, how they would react, become equally important as the musician. And this is, by the way, not just true with music. Let's talk about a conversation. If, you're, if, you are, if you are speaking, if the goal of speaking is to bond, then how you feel about what you're saying is, is no less important than how the listener feels about it. And no more important, because otherwise bonding doesn't take place. So you have to kind of negotiate that in your mind before you open your mouth. And if you're really in sync with the other person, 
right? That doesn't require a lot of rational planning and forethought. And if you're not, right, then you do, right? So you know, like people go to therapy and like the therapist like helps them navigate that because of the emotional tendency. It's hard for the person to like be sensitive to the other person and also, talk to, and also be authentic to them. But if you are very close, you can do that kind of on an intuitive level. So a musician, let's say a musician is, I don't know, the musician has a very close friend, a spouse, a child, and they know this person, they know who they are, they know who they are, and they want to connect, and they're going to use their music as the way of connecting, right? It's their sense of them, themselves, and the sense of their beloved fused together that's going to generate what music would be appropriate, what music speaks to that communion, right? And then, obviously, that's what that gets infused into their physical hands, right? So even when they're in their head, are they disconnected from this other person? Right? It's, now, if I'm just playing the music and, all, and, and you just happen to hear it, then the connection to you only happens when I actually use my hands to play the instrument. Okay. Why does God want to play music? Music being a metaphor. Why does God want to play music? Is it A, because he's really into the music, or B, the music is a way to connect to us? That means when he's in his head deciding the music he's going to play, who's in his head with him in some sense? Us. Us. And when he's making that decision, it's a negotiation and maybe even maybe negotiation is not really, it's almost, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dialogue between his sense of himself and a sense of us of what kind of music would bring us together. Now, is that intimate or not? Mm-hmm. It's extremely intimate. And does that necessarily require, though, God to make a judgment about what music is and is not appropriate? Okay. And if you know what is going to come out through the rest of the year is based, the way God will treat you, the blessings and also the challenges that are going to come throughout the year, is God playing that piece of music? Is that empowering? Because it, right? it's, 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 it's tailor-made. For, okay? And um, if you know that's what's happening, how should you feel about the coming year? Optimistic or not? Optimistic. Now, does that mean it'll always be pleasant? It's a different issue, right? But even the unpleasantness has a deep positivity to it. Just imagine God playing really off-tune. <laughs> he doesn't play off-tune. Sometimes we're off tune, and he's like, oh, I thought we could do this whole jazz thing, but it's not working. <laughs> okay. Um, now, I, w- I want to just point out something, taking the music metaphor a bit further than maybe it should be, but <laughs> there's something called a silent note. Do you know what a silent note is? What? A pause. And it's called a note. Why is it called a note? There's two reasons why it's called a note. One is a technical reason. Well, you have to know how long to pause, right? And a note is actually like you measure a unit of time, full notes, half notes, right? So you have to measure how long do you pause. But the other reason it's called a note is actually substantively, is that the pause, I'm gonna say it and then I'll explain. The pause is a sound just like playing the actual music as a sound, in the sense that the, you hear it. Now, it doesn't, you don't hear it, you hear the absence. And that absence, in contrast with the other notes, actually creates the music, right? So the fact that I'm not playing, not making a particular sound, it doesn't mean anything. But if I don't make a sound between one note and another note, that all of a sudden takes on a certain meaning. 
So both the, 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 the blessings of life and health and, 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 and livelihood are music, but also, God forbid, when those things are absent, those are also notes in the music, right? Inspiration and, 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 and a sense of religious um, connection and sensitivity, those are notes, but also when a person feels cold and estranged, from God, those are also equally notes. But they're only, but you only realize those other things are notes when they're put in contrast with the night. Just silence is not a note. But silence after a sound and before a sound, carefully measured out in the right way, actually has, it sounds like something, it means something. And so, on Rosh Hashanah, and again, in Hasidus, the notion of decree is probably not the best adjective, the best verb to use, but we'll go there. Hashem decrees how much money we're going to make, how much money we're going to lose, how healthy we'll be, how sick God forbid we'll be, how much healing will come, how, much, how, how our family life will be, what's going to happen with our loved ones. God also determines, and people aren't aware of this, but this makes a big deal, also your spiritual life. How inspired are you going to be? How cold are you going to be? I don't mean physically, but that as well. Yeah. How much are you going to grow in your knowledge? How much are you going to get stumped and hit a wall? What's the one thing that is not decreed or determined? What's the one thing that, that isn't a note in this piece of music that Hashem is going to play? How much money I make? How much inspired I am, how much I know, how, how easy it is for me to pray, how hard it is for me to study Torah. Whether you'll actually do those things. Right. What the choices I will make are not part of the music God plays. That's not determined. In other words, the, it's, because in my relationship with Hashem, there's how He is relating to me and there's how I'm relating back to Him. What he is deciding is how he's going to relate to me. He's going to relate, that, and, it, and, it's, and it's musical in the sense that it has notes, it has a pattern, it has a rhythm, it has a symmetry, it, ha- it tells a story, it has positive things, the notes that are played, it has the absences, the silent notes, the pauses. It has complexity, it has unity, and it's based on a sense of who I am and who we are, uh, who he is, and, how, and really ultimately who we are that has been reaffirmed through crowding Hashem King and Rosh Hashanah. And that's what, play, that's what Hashem plays out throughout the year. But he doesn't make my choices for me. I do. Now, so what is Hashem, when Hashem is deciding on Rosh Hashanah, how much, whether a person lives or dies, whether a person is poor or rich, from the perspective of Hasidus, it doesn't have that feel, the first thing. It, it, it's a different kind of a judgment. It's coming from a different place. It's coming from some intimacy. And knowing that regardless of what it is, obviously we would prefer it to be positive, more positive. But whatever it is, it is not, it is not coming God as a Craig, you are guilty, be gone with you. It's this is the type of music that brings us together, which I hopefully is a pleasant word music. And if I'm a different person on Rosh Hashanah, I'm relating to him differently, then the music he selects will have to be a different music because the music is about our connection. Where is there room for negativity like, to transpire if it's all about our connection? Ah, uh, Well, relationships 
just like in music, there have to be pauses, especially in, in deep and complex music. Um, or I'll use humor as an example. Um, do you know what the most important part of a joke is? Timing. I'll say that. There's actually a pause you need to do between the setup and a punchline of a joke. How long is that pause supposed to be? Anyone know? It's actually, there's like a set of signs to it. I think it's like they say three beats. So you have to like figure out the beat of what you're thinking. So you have to, I don't, it might, it might be, it might not be three beats, but there's basically the idea is that the, the setup, the person has to hear the setup and have enough time to have absorbed it, not have to have moved on, but able to hear something from a different perspective, and then the punch, the, the line hits. Like, there's a certain, it's neat, you can't do it without it. Okay. Um, so let's talk about relationships, okay? I'll use marriage, because rabbis talk a lot about marriage, okay? One of the, one of the pieces of advice that I got before I got married was that it is important when you get married to fight often. Fighting often is important. It's also important to fight well. I'll start with the fighting well, then we'll go back to the fighting often. What is fighting well? Fairly? No. Fairness has no place in marriage. No place in marriage. Fairness has place in business. Like if you're getting to fair, something's already, if you're using fairness, you've already gotten to a level of in-person, which happens, but it's, it's, yeah. They were not fighting well is. Fighting well is like this. The goal of the fight, right? Fight well means to achieve the goal of the fight in the best way possible. So I need to figure out what the goal of the fight is. Now, if I'm fighting an enemy, what is the goal of fighting an enemy? Wait. To defeat them, right? Is that the goal of fighting your spouse? No. Okay, so we have to first get Fighting well is determined by the goal. The goal is not to defeat your spouse. Okay, so then what is the goal of fighting? Come to a better understanding. Come to a better understanding. That could be a version of it. Let's generalize it. Right, to come to a common ground. Now, the common ground could be just understanding that you have an irreconcilable difference and becoming okay with it. It could be finding a creative solution. It doesn't matter what it is, but it's coming to a common ground. Okay? Now, can you come to a common ground if you don't acknowledge the, that you are currently not on common ground? Okay. This goes back to the fighting often. If you are not on common ground, rather than pretending you are on common ground, you have to acknowledge you're not on common ground and then deal with it in such a way, often it is unpleasant, at least in the initial stages, in such a way that brings you to common ground. Does that mean that there's time for voicing, um, and you get, this is a part of it doing it well, voicing resentment, voicing um, hurt, um, being honest about the fact that you have an irreconcilable difference? Now, at those individual moments, if you freeze frame at that point, it feels like there's this void, there's this gap, there's this chasm separating the two people. But if I zoom out, that, that doesn't look like that at all, right? It's, it's like the silent note in the music. Right? So the negativity in experience is not negativity in terms of substance, of what it's about. Does that make sense? 
Now, this is a hard thing for a person to, to accept. But, but part of embracing Rosh Hashanah is that, you know, Hashem's going to give me a sweet new year and everything. Does that mean that if Hashem gives me a sweet year, that means I will never have any pain or misery or disappointment or frustration because God gave me a sweet new year? Is that, is that what that means? Obviously, it doesn't mean that. Because no one's ever had a sweet new year. In other words, in a, in a certain sense, if Hashem and I are really not in a, in, a, in a particular place on Rosh Hashanah, then Hashem can't play music that's appropriate to that place. If we're in a different place, He can't play music that place. If I was one place on Rosh Hashanah and I leave that place in the middle of the year, it's going to create an issue, right? So Rosh Hashanah is very important and very intimate, but it's, but it's also... It doesn't, it's not like a magic solution. It's like, oh, if you have a perfect Rosh Hashanah, it's all decreed, so that, it's just not like that. It creates a, a deep foundation to work from, which is why it's very important, like the resolutions we make on Rosh Hashanah have to be genuine. What do I mean by genuine? Should you take upon yourself on Rosh Hashanah, which we'll talk a second about the idea of taking things upon yourself on Rosh Hashanah. Should you take upon yourself something on Rosh Hashanah that you don't really think you can live up to? Does that make any sense? Because if you take something you don't really think you can live up to, then what happens? I fail. Aside from the problem of failure, that means the, the, the way you and Hashem related to Rosh Hashanah was like, was a, was a fantasy, was a bubble. It wasn't, and, and so when Hashem then tries to play that out in the course of the year, you diverge, you're not in the same place. It's like marrying somebody because you're infatuated with them. It's a bad idea. It doesn't mean you shouldn't like them. But if you're infatuated with them, that means that... that your sense of it's such it's so artificial, it's such in a bubble that as life progresses, there isn't the found there isn't the foundation. So should so yes, we return to Hashem, yes, we crown Hashem, yes, we're gonna take on new resolutions and take things upon ourselves to be better. But it has to be something it has to be genuine also. Okay. So one of the customs in Chassidus is that Rosh Hashanah, one should take upon themselves something, an additional thing in Judaism. Um, there's different versions. Some say that one should both be a positive thing and a negative thing. Um, there's, there's a story I like. So, what did the Rebbe take on Rosh Hashanah? What wasn't the Rebbe doing that the Rebbe decided Rosh Hashanah should take on as a new thing? Anyone know? So the Rebbe was like pretty religious. So the Rebbe, the, the, the owner of the matzah bakery in Kfar Chabad used to get a, a bottle of vodka from the Rebbe. The Rebbe would hand out cups of wine and to certain people for certain things um, as, a, as a vehicle for blessing would give out um, actually a bottle of vodka and they're supposed to use that for Luchayim and for bringing. So the Rebbe used to give him, when he would come to the Rebbe, the Rebbe would hand him a bottle of vodka. And one year he came and the Rebbe didn't hand him a bottle of vodka. And he took that as a bad omen, like the Rebbe is withholding the blessing. And so I, I don't know if he asked or he said a letter, but he inquired from the Rebbe what's going on. And, and the Rebbe's response was that on Rosh Hashanah, he thought about where he could improve. And he realized that using chametz, because vodka is chametz, is forbidden on Pesach, as the vehicle for blessing for a matzah bakery is inappropriate. And so he took upon himself that, that the blessings for the matzah, the blessings for Pesach, should not in any way be connected to chametz. Like, now, is that the kind of thing you or I need to be working on? <laughs> but everybody has things they can improve on. So you take something to improve, but the thing has to be, it has to be something that's genuine. Something that you can, there, there's, a, there's advice, um, I think it's even attributed to the Rebbe, that when you're trying to figure out what to take on, you think about what you can do, realistically. 
And then you cut that in half. And then you cut it in half again. And that's what you take on. Because the idea, you can always grow from something small. But if you start with something big and go back, it, 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 first off, there's the feelings of failure and guilt that are with it. And it also breaks a certain trust and dynamic in a relationship. Right? I want to be that the way I'm living my life throughout the year is also playing out the music that I decided on Rosh Hashanah. Right? You know, if, if, if Hashem and I are playing, uh, playing as a duet, right, and I go off into the middle and start playing something else, it doesn't work. Okay? And so on Rosh Hashanah, this idea of Hashem judging us is not standing over in judgment of you deserve, you don't deserve. It's a different kind of judgment, but that also means we're part of it. So where are we holding on Rosh Hashanah? We want to be holding in the place that we're the most devoted, that we're most sincere, but that it's also a genuine devotion, a genuine sincerity. And make decisions, make judgments about who we are and how we're going to live our life that we're also going to play out the rest of the year. And in that sense, the day of Rosh Hashanah contains the whole year, not just for Hashem, but also for ourselves. Does that mean you should sit down Rosh Hashanah and plan out every single day of the coming year? No, but you should have a sense. And if you have one or two things that concretely anchor that, that makes a tremendous difference. Now, this sense is this sense of Hashem judging us. Is this, is, is this, meant, to, is this meant for a person to feel like, oh, well, of course, Hashem, us, we're on the same page. It's wonderful. Just like say the Hebrew word, Zorem, just like go with the flow. Or is this supposed to be intense and maybe even overwhelming? Sure, it's intense and maybe overwhelming, but it's still intimate, empowering, right? and optimistic. And optimistic not in the sense of wishful thinking. Right? Of course we pray to Hashem that everything should happen, we should be healthy, we should have enough money, and our children, and our spouses, and our parents, and our friends, everything. Yes, but we also don't think that if that doesn't happen, it's because, oh, God thinks I'm a bad person, that's why he decreed I lose my job. That for whatever reason, there needs to be a, a silent note in, in the music. And, and I need to therefore figure out what's the next thing after that, how to relate to that. Um, I'm going to just give you, give you a, a, an example. This is an extreme example. Um, but there are a few, few tzaddikim where you see a similar thing. There was a, there was a, a tzaddik whose name was... Uh, Abzush of Anapoli. Um, was a disciple of the Magad of Mizrich. Magad of Mizrich was the successor of the Baal Shem Tov and the leader of the Hasidic movement. And someone came to Magad of Mizrich and asked him, how are you supposed to bless Hashem for the bad the same way you bless Hashem for the good? So, he said, that's a good question. Travel to Abzush of Anapoli, my disciple, and he will tell you. So he traveled to Abzush of Anapoli. And he asked him the question, and Zosh said, the maggot sent you to me? It's very strange. I've never had a bad day in my life. Zosh was poor. Like, like, basically, everything that could go wrong in a person's life went wrong in his life. He's never had a bad day in his life. Was he delusional or was he not delusional? If you can hear something as music, does it sound different than just noise? Yeah. If everything Hashem does to us is playing out that music, if you hear the music, it's always, always positive. It's not always pleasant. 
We want it to be positive and pleasant. We ask for that. But we are convinced and we have the confidence that it will for sure be positive. Okay? Um, There was... There was, some, there was a, another Hasidic Rebbe who survived the Holocaust and he lost 10 children. I think it was the, I'm trying to remember if it was the, yeah, I think it was the Kleisenberg Rebbe, the story happened. That could be confusing. It was the, it was the Belzer Rebbe. They both lost a lot of uh, family. I think this was the Kleisenberg Rebbe. But I don't remember, so I gave the details wrong. But one of them was one time someone mentioned them that how they had a hard life and they got very shaken up like, I never had a hard life. No, they went through the Holocaust, they lost children. Like, <laughs> it wasn't that they're delusional. There's these the two levels. And so part of appreciating Rosh Hashanah, if you appreciate Rosh Hashanah, is the reason that everything afterwards is playing that out. Right? And so there, that, the optimism is not a wishful thinking optimism. It's very important. A person who's mature, a person who's experienced the world, can't stand on Rosh Hashanah and pray to Hashem that everything go right and their, and their life look like a storybook fantasy. Like you can't sincerely pray for that. But you can see the player that it is as pleasant and as overtly good as possible and that those absences, those voids, those senses of deprivation are experienced as the part of the music that they are. That you can pray for. That you can be confident Hashem will, 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 will help us with. Right? And so that judgment is a very different judgment. It's a very different feel. Okay? Um, one thing I want to point out In the classic view, there is a sense that Hashem is judging you. And I don't necessarily want to say that that's right or that's wrong, but in the, in this, in the Hasidic view, is what Hashem is judging you, he's saying like, you, I want to be connected to you, or I don't want to be connected to you, I like you, or I don't like you, is that, is that what the judgment is? Right? You know, there's this way that we infer that if someone treats me in one way, that's because of how they feel about me. So if a person doesn't talk to me, it must be because they don't like me. They don't. This happened once in a class in the men's program. There was an older gentleman. Um, how should I put this delicately? Not the most brilliant person, to put it mildly. Um, and he was elderly. And the class, and he's also very, very new to Judaism. And the class was kind of like on one level of knowledge, and he was on another level, which was his lowest level class. So I, you know, in a class, it's very hard to, like, stop for one personal time. Um, and, and it was a class, and guys were very interested. It was a class on prophecy, actually. And people were asking questions based on certain knowledge, and I was saying certain things, and he was, like, stopping me to ask questions. And I guess at one point, I, I either didn't notice or, or, or didn't register or something that, that, that he wasn't following. I had said something, and he didn't follow, and then he was lost. And he just... Like, I didn't know this because he kept it to himself, but he went and he told someone else, told someone else that, that Rabbi Kaufman hates him. <laughs> like, oh, afterwards we spoke, and Baruch Hashem is also, he's also very, uh, you, know, you know, emotionally sensitive the other way. So I spoke and we apologized that I didn't mean him. But it's just interesting. All I did was not answer his question because I didn't notice because the whole class is moving one direction. He's not with the class. And, and yeah, I'm a human being and I failed and I should be more sensitive. And from that, he came to the conclusion that I dislike him. So that's not true. Right? And if you more we understand that this is the judgment, the judgment is all, is what, going back to the music, what kind of music I want to play to bring us together. If that's what Hashem is making judgment about, of course He cares about me. That's a given. Why is it a given? Because I crowned Him king. Because we're devoted to each other. Right? So this judgment is a natural consequence 
of him accepting the kingship. Does that make sense? Okay. So, again, should we take it any less seriously? No, but it should be, have a different feel and a different flavor. Again, if there are questions now, I'll take them now because I was asked to get back to the men's program for a meeting a little bit early than I normally do. So instead of ending at quarter two, I will end at 22, but there's usually questions afterwards, so I'm going to end it now. If anyone wants to ask me something,